and you'd open up to the book of Matthew and then take a left and you will end up in 12 different prophets. We are in the second of those 12, the book of Joel, so you'll hit Malachi, just keep going through a couple Z's and eventually you'll get to Joel. Just want to do a real quick plug. Thank you to all the men uh, yesterday and uh, at least one lady. I know Tasha was there. There might have been some others. I know Kendra was there feeding us incredible scones. But thank you for all the work that you did yesterday. It was pretty incredible how much was done. Um, that space hopefully will be renovated very quickly. And lastly, if you're new, uh, once a month we have a first steps class, which is basically not really a class, <clears throat> more of a meet the pastor <clears throat> and clear his throat, meet the pastor and uh, have a donut and just kind of get to know our <clears throat> story a little bit. So I invite you at 10 a.m. Uh, after the end of service, between services and downstairs in that space, so it'll be awesome. <clears throat> Excuse me. Well, we're working our way through the 12 minor prophets, and these prophets are described as minor because they are smaller in size, not less significant in character. All the prophets, both major and minor, were called by God at a time when the people of God were divided into two kingdoms. We talked about this last week. The northern kingdom, made up of ten tribes, often called Israel, or sometimes Samaria, because that's what its capital was, and the southern kingdom, which was Judah plus Benjamin, which existed inside of the Judah territory. But they were divided into two kingdoms, and these prophets rose, and so at different times, these prophets came and they were either speaking to the people of God right before exile, during exile, or shortly after exile. It kind of depends on where it is in history. Now, each of these men are rather ordinary, um, but they were chosen by God to deliver a pretty extraordinary message every time, both to God's people and to the world around them, and obviously to us as well. And sometimes the message took the form of something that was very hope-filled, and other times it was full of judgment and warning. And occasionally the message took the form of the man himself who was actually speaking or sharing that message. So last week we learned that Hosea was not only a watchman for Israel, he was a man that Jesus, I'm sorry, God wanted us to watch. And so as a demonstration of his own faithfulness, God <clears throat> commanded Hosea to marry an immoral woman, and that woman proved to be unfaithful after bearing three children. Years after uh, the third child was born, she somehow abandoned uh, her marriage, abandoned her family, and she returned to a life of sexual immorality. And God once again came to Hosea and said, I want you to again to redeem her, to go love her again. And so Hosea, whose name means salvation, provided us a picture of God's redemptive love for the unlovable in the clearest way possible. And so now we are in or turn from what was the longest minor prophet with the most chapters uh, to one of the smallest, not the smallest, but one of the smallest, which is Joel. Now, we don't know much about who Joel is or the specific circumstances that explain why Joel is actually writing. Unlike Hosea, there aren't any historical markers really 
in the book of Joel to help us understand even when Joel wrote exactly. Um, that makes Joel somewhat universal, somewhat timeless uh, for all people. Uh, it was written to Judah, the southern kingdom, but we don't know if the northern kingdom even exists at this point. It's possible it does. But like so many of the prophets, many of the prophets as we gather together, it's going to feel like, man, that's a real downer. That's real dark. That's like all judgment and wrath. And you see that a lot of the minor prophets are like that because the prophets are speaking at a time when the people of God are incredibly rebellious. And so Joel is not the kind of thing that you're going to probably turn to for your daily devotions, but it's certainly important for you to understand because God wants it well, intended to have it written in the Bible for us to have our faith established and grown uh, and somewhat teach us about himself. Now, even though Joel is thousands of years old in what feels like a completely different world than we know, the words still hold meaning for us today. Now, all we learn really about the when of the prophecy of Joel is that it likely was spoken in Jerusalem, obviously to Judah, and he was called to be a prophet shortly after a major locust plague. We don't know exactly when this plague happened. There are plagues that happen in the Middle East often. Um, the last one in the United States was like the 1800s, where they were considered an actual plague. But we see that there was a plague, a locust invasion of some kind, and this was a natural disaster in Judah. And we have natural disasters all the time in different forms. We have often earthquakes, we have hurricanes, we have nuclear meltdowns, we have um, all kinds of different diseases that spread, uh, accidents that all of which cause us to ask some deep questions about God, about sin, about salvation, or at least they should. Questions like, did God cause this? Questions like, is this hurricane, is this tsunami, is this a punishment for sin of these people? Could God have stopped this? Or just simply, what does this mean? And so you imagine Judah, right? We don't understand what a locust plague is like, perhaps, but we have all seen disasters as a nation, disasters in the world, disasters locally, disasters maybe in your own home. You're like, what does this mean? Now, in a rather obscure passage in the Gospel of Luke, Jesus is actually asked about some disasters. He's told some troubling news about two disasters or two tragedies. Here's what he writes. There were some present at the very time who told him, Jesus, about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. So, understand this. There's sacrifices happening in the temple. Pilate, the one who was in charge, the governor who actually oversees the crucifixion of Jesus, mixes the blood of the Galileans with the sacrifice. In other words, they're killed as they're sacrificing at the temple. And he answered them, Do you think that these Galileans, the ones who were killed while they were worshiping, were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? Wow, what an amazing question. 
No, I tell you, unless you repent, you all likewise will perish. That's not very comforting, Jesus. Right? Then he's asked another question. Or those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them, right? There's a tower that fell and killed 18 people. So they're coming to tell Jesus about this tragedy. What does Jesus respond? He's the one that brings this one up. Do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. That's not very comforting. So he takes a disaster and a tragedy, and it's interesting how he responds to it. They've told him about this 18 people have died, these people that were killed. And he kind of addresses, I think, in many ways, typical responses of what happens when bad things occur. One is, well, these people must be evil. They must have deserved it. Which in a Jewish context, that would have made a lot of sense. Others go, well, God's loving. He wouldn't allow these things to happen. They're just accidents outside of his control. It's interesting that Jesus didn't question whether these people in these two cases deserve judgment or not. He turned it on its head and he directed it towards those who were asking the question. Instead, he used, I think, this news or these two experiences to reveal an often ignored truth from Romans chapter 3, which is a quote of a psalm, which basically says, there is no one who is righteous. There's no one who is good. There's no one who seeks God. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Dare I say that's not the first thing you should bring up when a disaster comes your way, but it is a truth that we must remember because we say things like, why do bad things happen to good people? And that is a false statement. Bad things happen to bad people and we're all bad. The question is, why did that bad thing happen? Which leads us back to the original question, is God good and is he in control and all those things? Every disaster though, every tragedy, every accident, if you think about it, is a judgment of God. Why? Because in the book of Genesis, the entire world was cursed by God. In fact, Romans 8 tells us that he cursed it in hopes of redeeming it that the death and the brokenness and all these things that are going wrong in the world are a sign of God's judgment and a call to redemption. So the question isn't, why did the disaster come? The question should often be, why did it come on me? Now, the goal of Joel's prophecy and the goal, actually, if you didn't know, of Jesus' teaching and the goal of even this sermon is, guess what? Repentance. It is to turn away from living our own way and turn toward God. And God uses all kinds of things to get our attention. As C.S. Lewis says, pain insists upon being attended to. You've got to address it. God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our consciences, but shouts in our pains. It is His megaphone to rouse a deaf world. And that's what this locust plague is for the people of Judah. Wake up. This is not all there is, and you're in rebellion. So as I said, it begins with a locust plague. Joel is looking out at Judah, and he is surveying the destruction that has happened because of locusts, 
which he says is historically unprecedented. And so Joel starts this way. Hear this, you elders. Give ear, all inhabitants of the land. Has such a thing happened in your days and the days of your fathers? Nothing. And he goes on. What is this thing? Tell your children of it. Let your children tell their children. And their children another generation. Keep talking about this thing. What the cutting locust left. What the swarming locust has eaten. What the swarming locust has left. What the hopping locust has eaten. What the hopping locust has left. What the destroying locust has eaten. It says, look at this devastation. Tell people about this devastation. Remember this devastation. Nothing like this has ever happened before. Again, in our context, we're pretty unfamiliar with locusts. Um, I've never experienced a locust swarm. Perhaps you have. If you've been to the Middle East, perhaps you've seen the destruction of that. But locusts are a kind of winged grasshopper, a little bit bigger in size than your normal grasshopper you might find in Snohomish County. But they have the power to devastate crops and devastate agrarian cultures in short amount of time. The desert locust is actually especially uh, notorious. Found in Africa, uh, it can uh, and the Middle East actually uh, and the Asia, it can inhabit. Uh, at this point, found in 60 different countries and can cover one-fifth of the Earth's land surface with the amount of them. Desert locust plagues may threaten economic livelihood and one-tenth of the world's humans if they ever unleash at the same time. A desert locust can swarm up or across 460 square miles. And will include between 40 and 80 million locusts in less than half a square mile. Each locust can eat its weight in plants each day, which a swarm of that size would eat 423 million pounds of plants every day. A fully developed swarm of adult locusts is literally like a legion of soldiers that goes and ravishes vineyards, consumes every leaf and berry, and rips the bark off trees and branches. Which is why Joel will describe it like a nation. A nation has come up against my land, powerful and beyond number. Its teeth are lion's teeth, its fangs of a lioness, and it's laid waste my vine and splintered my fig tree. It's stripped off her bark and thrown it down. Their branches are made white, which is literally what happens. And it's interesting that Joel, when he addresses the audience, he addresses the elders, he addresses the drunkards, he addresses the farmers, and he addresses the priests. And you go, why all four of those people? Well, you think about all the things that have been taken away. The elders and leaders, you have no power. The drunkards, you have no joy anymore because the vines are gone and you can't get drunk. The farmers have no food. The priests have no crops for grain offerings and sacrifice would have to stop. It devastates the whole nation in every way. No power, no joy, no food, no religion. Now, I think, did I put some pictures in there? They show Locust 1, Locust 2, Locust 3. You see those? Are they not in there? Oh, there we go. So these are pictures of locust swarms. Um, you can see uh, when one came through this land, the part that's obviously devastated and the part that's left. Um, that's more difficult to see. That's actually the white bark of trees that used to be green and 
full of foliage. Okay. So, imagine Joel is looking out and he's like, holy smokes, what has happened? And God is speaking through Joel. So God is giving the people a picture of something, if you will. Now let's go back to, uh, yeah, there. Perfect. So in view of this natural disaster, what the priests are charged to do, actually, is to consecrate a fast. Let's go backwards, sorry, to 14. He says, consecrate a fast. He sees us, consecrate a fast, call a solemn assembly, gather the elders, go to the house of the Lord your God and cry out to the Lord. Cry out to God in prayer. And that's what disasters are supposed to do. They lead us, yes, to sorrow naturally, but they are supposed to lead us to this place where we realize that we are pretty small and that we need help. And Joel seems to imply in verse 15, alas for the day, for the day of the Lord is near as destruction from the Almighty, it comes. He seems to imply that the locusts aren't just showing up, that the locusts in many ways are actually God's tool for destruction. That the locusts are God's agents of wrath. You know the last time God used locusts, and maybe even the only time, though it's referenced that God uses locusts, was against who? Egypt. The eighth of ten plagues that was sent upon the kingdom of Egypt to destroy it. You read about it in Exodus 10. It's after the seventh plague, which is hailstones. And if you read about the hailstones, the hailstones come in and break every tree and kill every cattle that's in the field and wipe out everything. Moses goes before Pharaoh as he's looking at his devastated kingdom and he says, hey, let my people go. And he seems about to repent and then he relents. And so the Lord unleashes the locusts who, quote, will eat all that the hail has left which ain't much. And so, Moses goes back after the locusts have come. And what does Pharaoh say? I've sinned. He says, I've sinned. I see the devastation. I've sinned. And just as he's about to let the people go, having asked that, would you please plead with God to remove this death from me? He relents again. God shows him mercy and removes the locust, but then Pharaoh says, oh, never mind. And we wonder, what will God's people do? You ever met somebody who had a huge disaster in their life and they cry out to God and you think, this is it, and then everything relents and you go, never mind. Do you realize in this picture what Joel is telling, or God through Joel is telling the people of Israel is that they've become Egypt. They become the very enemy of God, the very people of God who pretended to repent and are not. They've cried out to God, and yet they're not crying from their hearts. So at this point, Joel doesn't give uh, words of comfort. He doesn't say, oh, don't worry, it's going to get better. In fact, he says it's going to get much worse. He does not tell them, that the day is going to pass, he says, no, the day of locusts is bad. 
but actually it's going to get much worse. The day of locusts is nothing compared to this thing called the day of the Lord. Now the Old Testament, Joel is the first one to ever mention the day of the Lord. It's mentioned in other prophets as well, but Joel is the first one to start talking about it. The day of the Lord is a phrase that uh, is used to designate kind of a future period of catastrophic judgment. The day of the Lord describes a moment when God personally intervenes. He personally intervenes and directly or indirectly is accomplishing some plan He has. And sometimes the references are to destructive events in the present like a a locust plague like this. But more often, it's actually referring to a more intense final judgment by God when the world will end. So Joel says, look, yeah, this is a bad day, but this is nothing compared to the day that is coming. The different prophets talk about this day. Isaiah talks about it. Behold, the day of the Lord comes, it's cruel with wrath and fierce anger. The prophet Ezekiel talks about it as a day of clouds, a time of doom for the nations. The prophet Zephaniah talks about it. He says it's going to be a day of distress, a day of anguish and ruin and devastation and darkness and gloom and clouds and darkness. Even in the New Testament, we have Peter talking about it. He says there's going to be a day that's coming quickly when everything's going to be burned up and divided and all the deeds of men will be exposed for judgment. We don't talk about the day of the Lord often. But the prophets talk about it all the time. And you find the Apostle Peter talks about it quite often. But he says the disaster of the locusts can't compare with that day. Can't compare with the coming of the Lord on his day. About this same future day, Joel continues the comparison with the prophets. And he says, blow a trumpet in Zion, sound an alarm on my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming. It is near. And how does he describe it? Again, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness. Like the blackness, imagine the blackness of a locust plague coming. Like the clouds cannot be seen, the sky is darkened, not because the sun is down, but because the locusts are blocking it. He's not talking about locusts. He's talking about the Lord and his army coming. He says it will be a day like it's never seen before, nor will ever be seen after that for generations. Joel describes, as I said, this day like an army that is coming to devastate everything in its path. And then in verses 10 and 11, he says this, the earthquakes before them, so this army coming, The earth is quaking, the heavens tremble, the sun and moon are darkened, and the stars withdraw their shining. And what does verse 11 say? The Lord utters his voice before his army. That's not locusts. For his camp is exceedingly great, and he who executes his word is powerful. For the day of the Lord is great and very awesome, and who can endure it? So Joel's telling his people the day of the Lord is coming like a locust plague, and it's going to have a comprehensive effect on every part of life, and it's unstoppable. And the only proper response when we see present wrath, like a locust plague, 
as we consider the future wrath coming, Joel will say, is repentance. But not all repentance is repentance. Not all turning from sin is actually returning to God. That's really important to understand. Because throughout the prophets, throughout Joel, he will talk about repenting, but he will push it really hard to, to like go, and I don't just mean stop sinning. Joel writes this, yet even now, with this impending doom coming, he says, return to me with all of your heart. Do you realize there's a return to God that can happen that has nothing to do with the heart? Return to me with all your heart, with fasting and weeping with the morning. He goes further. Rend your hearts and not your garments. Don't pretend. Return to the Lord your God, for He is gracious and He is merciful and He is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relents over disaster. The Lord does not respond merely to torn garments. He responds to torn hearts. See, the Bible teaches very clearly, Paul does in 2 Corinthians 7, that there's a big difference between worldly sorrow and godly sorrow. Both produce cries. Both produce weeping because it's painful. But there is a sorrow that leads to salvation and there's a sorrow that leads to death, he says. When we talk about true repentance, true turning from sin into God, it's not enough to stop drinking the toilet water. You have to drink of the fresh water of Jesus. When we talk about true repentance, we're talking about like an acknowledgement of sin. I, I actually deserve punishment for what I've done. I don't think we often believe that. I think more often than not, we think it's not that bad. Failing to recognize that that sin you think is not that bad required the blood of the Son of God to die on the cross for. A sorrow for sin. I hate what I've done. That's a feeling that you cannot produce on your own. Which is why Timothy, through Timothy, Paul tells us that repentance is granted by God. And a turning from sin it's not enough just to weep and I hate this. It's like, I don't want anything to do with this. I desire that which is not this. And so when he calls to his people, it's not just, stop sinning! It's return to me. And don't return to me ripping your garments and going through sacrifices and pretending to be religious. From your heart, turn to me. Without doubt, the disasters of our world and in our lives are only foretaste of the great disaster that is coming. And although I think calls to turn or burn are at times appropriate, those kinds of things usually just lead to reaction. Turn or burn! What do you mean? I think God's call to return and live is what leads to repentance. Now, the locusts give us a picture of our lives without God. If you think of that picture of locusts, I think it's a pretty good picture of our life without God, a life that is unsatisfying, a life that is shame-filled, a life that is defeated, a life that is broken, a life that does not have joy. 
But God's invitation to return, not just to stop sinning, to return to him, Joel has some powerful things to say. Here's all the things God says to Joel. If you return to me, I will satisfy you. If you return to me, I will remove your shame. If you return to me, I will vindicate you. You don't need to fight your own battles. If you return, I will restore you. If you return to me, I will be with you. Are those not things that we want to hear? Is that not good news? Like, yes, the bad news is real. The bad news is God's wrath is coming. The bad news is we have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But the good news is he said, I haven't given up on you. I actually planned for your failure. Turn to me. You're looking for satisfaction. I will satisfy you. You're trying to do everything you can to get rid of the shame. I will remove your shame. I will tell you who you are. I will vindicate you. I will defend you. I will defeat your enemies. I will punish justly. You don't need to take your own vengeance. I will restore you and fix everything that is broken, and I will be with you wherever you go. That's the invitation. It's not enough to say, turn or burn. It's return and live. Joel speaks, Joel speaks of salvation in many ways as you begin to read as the undoing of everything that was done by the locusts. He says, I'm going to pull back the locusts. I'm going to restore the vine. That's all the language he uses. It reminds me of what Samwise Gamgee says to Gandalf. Love Lord of the Rings. The books are better than the movies, but the movies aren't bad. But near the end, he says to Gandalf, is everything sad about to come untrue? Is everything sad going to come untrue? C.S. Lewis said it this way. When we think about the restorative power of God and what he's going to do, he says, some mortals say of some temporal suffering, no future bliss can make up for it, not knowing that heaven, once attained, will work backwards and turn even that agony into glory. What a beautiful picture. So it's not just God's wrath, destruction. It's like God's restoration. God's promise to make it more beautiful and more glorious and bring back that which was taken away. Well, Joel reveals that God's salvation is not just a rescue from the destruction that's coming, it's actually a rescue to glory. And while this happens completely on the great and awesome day of the Lord, when Christ returns, I think we experience it now through faith. We begin to experience the, the precursor, if you will, a foretaste of what the resurrection truly means for us. Acts chapter 2 is the beginning of the church. The disciples have been told by Jesus to wait in Jerusalem for the coming of the Spirit. They're hiding out, praying. And 50 days after Jesus rose from the dead, as the disciples are gathered in Jerusalem, the Holy Spirit falls upon them. You can read this in Acts chapter 2. And the Holy Spirit fills them with power. It says they have Tongues of fire resting on them. Some kind of image that's happening. And they are proclaiming the glories of God. And people are hearing them in their own languages. And going, are these guys stinking drunk? What is going on? It's a huge commotion. All this noise. 
And Peter stands up and he's like, you know, it's pretty early in the day, we're not drunk. This is actually what's going on. And he quotes Joel. He quotes Joel saying, this is a fulfillment of what God said in Joel. He says, you shall know that I'm in the midst of Israel and that I am the Lord your God and there is none else and my people shall never be put to shame and it shall come to pass afterward that I'll pour my spirit on all flesh. This is what Peter says is happening as the church is launched. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy and your old men shall dream dreams and your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and female servants in those days I will pour out my spirit and I'll show wonders in the heavens and on the earth and blood and fire and columns of smoke. And the sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. For Mount Zion and Jerusalem there shall be those who escape. As the Lord has said, and among his survivors shall be those whom the Lord calls. He pours out his spirit and he shows us that salvation is much more than just saving from locusts. It is actually saving us to someone. More than God just for us, which he is in the Old Testament. More than God even with us, which he was as Jesus walked the earth. It is now God in us as we are filled with the presence of God himself. Jesus himself said, it's better that I go. It's hard to imagine having a more intimate relationship with God apart from being face-to-face with Jesus. Like if we had our choice, we'd go, well, I'm going to choose face-to-face with Jesus. That'd be rad. Like, do you not understand the closeness, closeness and the intimacy that the Lord has with you is deeper and richer than if Jesus was with you face to face. That's what Jesus said. His people are saved, not just rescued, but poured into personally. And it's very different than the outpouring of the Spirit in the Old Testament. As you read the Old Testament, you see that the Spirit was given to His people in different ways at different times, and they were actually given to particular people for special empowerments at different times, but never given to all of God's people. But Jesus, Peter says that Joel has been fulfilled and the Spirit of God is now filling every believer. The salvation is much more than just saving from. Everyone now who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved, meaning everyone who truly calls upon the name of Jesus from the heart will be filled with the presence of God. And everyone who is filled with the presence of God, guess what, becomes a prophet like Joel. That's what it said, right? It shall come to pass, thou pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. We become like Joel. We become like the prophets of old, proclaiming the truth of God. This was the very fulfillment that Moses wished for. Moses was overburdened with ministry. Moses was tired of, of being, if you will, the only voice for God, the only leader for God. And he cried out and he said, Ah, oh, would that all Lord's people were prophets. Oh, that the Lord would put His Spirit in all of them so that they could know God, they could hear from God, they could be led by God. And by His Spirit, God does just that. He makes us all prophets and all preachers proclaiming the same simple message. And what is the message? 
What's the message of Joel? It's actually three basic things. Number one, God judges sin. God judges sin. He doesn't overlook sin. He doesn't miss sin. He doesn't just excuse sin. He punishes sin. And the second thing Joel says is we need to repent. We are guilty. We need to turn from our sin and turn toward God, not just pretend and and do religious things, but actually love God from the heart, hate our sin, pursue God. And what does Joel also say? The mercy of God is real. And anyone who calls upon the name of the Lord, he will save. Those are the words of the prophet. There's such thing as sin. We need to repent. And God shows mercy through his son, Jesus Christ. We become prophets. The prophet Ezekiel, as you may know, one of the major prophets who wrote a very large prophecy, he looked forward to the day when God would take our hearts of stone and replace them with hearts of flesh. And what else did he say would happen that day? Not only would we have hearts of flesh, but the Lord says, I will pour my spirit into them and empower them to actually obey what I told them to do. I will help them live the way I've called them to live, to think the way I've called them to think, to walk the way I've called them to walk. This is the distinct difference between a believer and a non-believer. The presence of the Holy Spirit and the responsibility to act in the Spirit by prophesying. And I will argue by being a watchman like Ezekiel was. Another thing Ezekiel's told is kind of interesting. He is told that you're to be a watchman for Israel. You are to warn the wicked. And he says, if you warn the wicked, if you tell them, look, wrath is coming, you are rebelling, if you warn the wicked and they don't respond, death is on them. But if you do not warn the wicked from the wrath you know is coming, your blood is on their blood's on your hands. Do you know the Bible said that? That we have responsibility to be prophets. That God holds us responsible to know that we know the wrath is coming and we know the path to salvation. We know how people can have joy and eternal life. But God's warning to turn and our warning to turn must also be an invitation to return. As we said, alluding to Joel, the Apostle Paul reminds us that God's invitation comes through actually speaking words. Right? There's the famous and actually uh, mislabeled quote by St. Francis Assisi, preach the gospel and occasionally use words. Well intended, don't think he said it, but here's the problem. The Bible tells us to use words. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. That is true but he goes further. There's no distinction between Jew or Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all. This is to all, every nation, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That's from Joel. For everyone who calls, anyone who calls, will be saved. The question is, who's going to call and how? How then will they call on him if they've not believed? I don't know. They probably won't. Well, 
And how are they to believe in Him who they never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are those who preach the good news. And what does He say? But they have not obeyed the gospel. Not everyone's believed. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what He has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. We have a responsibility to tell people. We have a responsibility to warn people. We have a responsibility to preach to people. And you don't have to be a, quote, professional preacher to do that. You have people in your own home. You have people in your own lives. You have people in your own neighborhood. You have people in your own jobs where you know something that perhaps they don't. You have the responsibility to warn them of the coming disaster and the place to find refuge in Christ. We need not press people to make a decision. Joel tells us it's enough to warn people of the decision that God will make. And this is how he ends Joel. He promises restoration to all who repent and follow him, but he also promises condemnation for those who rage against him. At the end of his prophecy, he says these words about the day of the Lord. For behold, in those days and at that time, when I restore the fortunes of Judah and Jerusalem, so he is going to restore, I'm going to gather all the nations. And I'm going to bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat, and I'm going to enter into judgment with them there. And on behalf of my people, notice how many personal pronouns he says, my people and my heritage, because they scattered them among the nations and divided up my land. And they have cast lots for my people. They have traded a boy for a prostitute, sold a girl for wine, and have drunk it. He's telling them what the nations have done. Deplorable, evil things. He says, multitudes and multitudes will come into the valley of decision. And it's interesting how many evangelists I've read at different times have used this quote to talk about, it's the day of decision. That's not what this is talking about. What this is talking about is after he's restored his people, he brings in the rest of the nations into what is called the valley of the decision. This is not the place to make our final decision for Christ. This is the place where God reveals his final decision about you. If one finds themselves, Mike said this as we were talking through this sermon, said if one finds themselves in the valley decision, it's too late. You've already decided. And that's hard to hear. But if you walked outside today and you saw Jesus coming in the clouds, that's the first thing you would tell people, right? Repent right now. But we pretend like it's way off. We pretend like it's not going to happen. We pretend like we've got years and years and years and years and years. I pray that we don't. I pray we have minutes. Not because I want to see the wrath of God unleashed, although I'd love to see his justice and wrong things made right. It's because I want to live in the glory and the presence of my Savior right now. Peter reminds us that the day of the Lord is going to come. He reminds us that the heavens are going to pass away in a moment. It's going to come like a thief in the night. He reminds us on that day our deeds are going to be exposed and since this is going to happen, you know what he tells us to do? I think I have it. Maybe. Not. 
the scrolling things getting in my way? Do I have First Peter on there or not? There we go. It's going to come like a thief, and the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will burn up and dissolve, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. And he says, since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? Waiting for the hastening and coming of the day of the Lord. Are you looking forward to it? Are you waiting for it? That day in which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved and the heavenly bodies will melt and burn. But according to the promise, we are waiting for a new heavens and a new earth in which the righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting, applying you are, since you're waiting, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. And count the patience of our Lord as salvation. What a beautiful statement. Count the patience of the Lord as salvation. You know, we make fun of those guys holding the signs, which you don't see very often. The end is near. There's a lot of truth to that, if you read the Bible. The end of all things is near. And I ask you as we close, what if you knew the day of the Lord was coming tomorrow? What if you knew it was going to end tomorrow? How would you live differently? And perhaps, who would you warn urgently? Who would you warn urgently? Jesus tells us himself to watch, to be ready, because none of us know the day or the hour. And so I plead with all of us to prepare for eternity and to make it very difficult for anyone who knows you to go to hell. Catch that? Make it very difficult for anyone who knows you to go to hell. That's the responsibility of a prophet. You can't control whether anyone goes to heaven, goes to hell, whatever. You can warn, and you can plead, and you can share, and you don't have to go on the streets, and you don't have to go to another nation to do it. You can start in your own home, you can start in your own job, you can start in your own neighborhood, and say, Jesus is real, and he is coming. I want you to know him. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your grace to us and your love to us and your patience towards us, which Peter calls salvation. That you are patiently waiting, Lord, and you have left us here, those who know the truth, those who know what is coming, as prophets to share, to warn, to teach, to plead. I pray that our plea will be one that is full of warning, but full of love. That when we share the invitation to return to Jesus, that it will not sound like a turn or burn, but a return and live.